everyone, welcome to Deep Focus. Today me and Nick are going to be talking about Boogie Nights, Paul Thomas Anderson's film, second film. How are you doing today, Nick? I'm doing good. Yeah, uh, we, we ended up not being able to record uh, last week because of some unforeseen circumstances, but yeah, very, um, uh, we're going to be back at it. Very unfortunate. Um, yeah, what we're going to do is essentially release this a bit later. We could try to play catch up, but we want to get sort of a, an episode uh lagging by one episode essentially delaying our releases by one week and this way we'll always be able to make it on time yeah um so yeah anyways boogie nights um, yeah you suggested this film i did i really like this movie i it, it pops into my head um uh, all the time um you know whose performance that i really like in this is uh philip seymour hoffman's yeah um he just he kills it uh and if you know philip seymour hoffman from other movies and you watch him in this one it'll be like watching a different human being <laughs> you know yeah i love um, philip seymour hoffman i mean he's like the first actor i ever had like a uh you know like a an affinity for where i was like oh this man embodies what it means to be an actor i have like yeah. signed he's the only person that i have a signed picture of an autographed picture of oh that's awesome yeah um but yeah, no, this this film. I actually haven't seen a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson. Um I oh, like really? him a lot, but uh here before we get into it though, uh just spoiler warning here, you know, I know the movie's really old, but if you haven't seen it, you probably should. Uh you're going to be lost if you don't. So <laughs> Yeah. Uh yeah, go watch the movie. But uh Boogie Nights. Uh yeah, you Paul Thomas seen... Anderson is So I've seen There Will Be Blood. Um, okay. I've seen the beginning of Heart Eight because uh, back in uh, film school, our editing teacher showed it like the beginning to us, and I was really upset that we didn't get to watch the rest of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. And uh, I think I've seen everything. Yeah. I think I actually have seen everything. I really do need to rewatch There Will Be Blood, but yeah. I think otherwise, I, I haven't seen like his short films. I know he made a variety of short films. Yeah, I actually, so for me, it's been, I've seen There Will Be Blood multiple times. Uh, this is my second viewing of Boogie Nights. And um, I've seen uh, The Master once. Yeah. So that's about it for his filmography for me. But I really want to see uh, Heart 8 really bad. I've been wanting to ever since I saw that first scene. And Yeah, it's fun. For some reason, I haven't gotten around to it. But um, yeah, it's he's got a very varied filmography, you know, like the fact that punch drunk love and the master and the phantom thread and I boogie nights and there will be blood were made <laughs> yeah. by the same person. I got to say this most recent one phantom thread um, yeah. is amazing. It's probably it? one of my favorite movies of 2017. Probably cool. one of my favorite movies he made. I think it's amazing. Sweet. Gotta watch it. Yeah. We should at some point because I haven't seen yeah. it yet. So we'll be able to do a first viewing episode. Yeah, that will be good. Yeah, I mean, honestly, but, we should just do all his movies at some point. He's yeah, no, fantastic. Yeah, um, I, I think it's interesting uh, him as a director, though, because uh, anyone who's been following the co podcast up to this point, we always talk about how, um, like we we always talk about the way insight based filmmaking works in relation to the plot, but um, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is a very character based filmmaker. Oh yeah. You know, and it's it's 
very different. I'd actually put it in a similar vein to like uh, Robert Altman. Okay. You know, um, Agreed. and he, instead of focusing on the plot so much, like the plot seems almost to be like this fluid side piece, you mm-hmm. know, um, he focuses on these character arcs and those are the things that are very structured in yeah. his films. Um, like if you watch character arcs there, you basically get to see the character arcs of a bunch of different um, people and how they interact. And I think that's how he kind of gets to the insight. Yeah, and how they sort of contrast each other. Right. I mean, exactly. you were just speaking about Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, if you were looking at this from a plot perspective, like has zero purpose in this movie whatsoever. You know, <laughs> yeah. he's yeah. he's literally there as he has this flavor of just character and um, these great moments that he has, and you can glean something from that. But right. as relating to like a greater picture, he doesn't well, have I mean, anything. Right. You right. Know, if you related or something. If you re- related anything in this, any character in this film to plot, the only one that really makes sense to have is, um, you know, uh, Mark Wahlberg's and uh, um, Burt Reynolds. Yeah, Burt Reynolds. Yeah. Sorry, I was yeah. spacing on his name. But I mean, even with Philip Seymour Hoffman comes off as a unique character in his character arc, um, it's essentially the, a similar thing that they all have. You know, he's just sort of a more pure instantiation of the moment where he's sort of desiring this family in connection with people, you know? Yeah. And that's and what I, they all are doing, but he, right. you know, so well, it's I, interesting. I think you're touching on what the movie, sorry, what the movie's about. Oh yeah. <clears throat> um, and yeah, it, it almost seems to be about this, uh, surrogate family of outcasts. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know? I think it's a hundred percent that. Yeah. And you know, I got to say, you know, uh, going back to even what you just said about insight, I think this is, I don't think Paul Thomas Anderson has a strict, you know, definitive message. I think this is very much a theme, frankly. Sure. I think it's a theme about family. Yeah. Um, so. I don't know. I, I would say that maybe he has uh, some sort of insight, um, whether it's, but I do think that lean would not be the way to describe any of his films. Yeah. Right. And not that that's necessarily bad. Like we said during the King, it's it leanness is a feat, not necessarily something that's good. Right. Mm, yeah. Um, it's good when it's used right. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. uh, now the way that PTA kind of wanders, I think is um, part of why his movies are so fun. Like, I, th- I think he fits really, really well into the epic genre. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's interesting because it, saying about wandering, it's it's voyeuristic. This film in particular is very voyeuristic in the sense that you're there and you're, you know, that scene, that initial party scene when Mark Wahlberg sort of runs away from his original family yeah, and joins them. That scene's masterful. And you're just, it's a handheld camera. And once again, it, not the entire scene, but you get it, these great wonders all over yeah. the film where he just doesn't cut and he's walking around as if you're walking around and sitting down and peeking into people's conversations and moments. Right. And it's voyeuristic in that sense. And I don't think that's, um, I don't think that's a coincidence considering this is sort of about the porn industry, but right. Uh, no, you also, know, I think that, I think that, uh, he does that for the same reason that like Robert Altman does. And I always thought yeah. that Robert Altman does long wonders to avoid having to give exposition. <laughs> yeah you know um because he can and also just, just really builds the scene as well yeah so, yeah but if you follow like 
um, if you follow a character through their like daily life in a oneer, like the beginning of their daily life, you can like pop in on conversations in a way that feels like like you said voyeuristic, but like also natural, yeah. right? And you can have them give have people be giving like key pieces of exposition for their character. Oh yeah, right? brilliantly. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, look at the opening scene to this this movie. You know, the that nightclub. That night yeah, you're not even following a character that's um, like a any main particular character, right? Character, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, like you that literally just get a taste of every single character. Well, that and is the character we're major. following is the owner of the nightclub, right? And like he literally doesn't yeah. even have to introduce him later, yeah. right? It's just uh, he's just there because we know him as the like, yeah. I mean, owner everyone's tired of this nightclub, right? Riley's introduced as the you know funny go lucky guy that's doing some disco. You have the right. girl on her rollerblades. You get a taste of her, and uh, you know the club owner. He sits yeah. us down with Robert Reynolds, and then Robert you know Reynolds, it ends yeah. in an amazing way, which is I always really love really good use of contrast. And I, when uh, Mark Wahlberg comes out and they lock eyes, and then it cuts from Mark Wahlberg's eyes back to Burt Reynolds' eyes, and that's the end of the several-minute winner, you know? Yeah, I like how it... Uh, um, what's his face? Little Bill? Who's who's the actor for him again? I can't remember. Uh, for who? Uh, Little Bill. Or is mm. that his name? Who's Little that, Bill play? The guy, the guy that blows his umbrella out after he shoots his wife. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, uh, I have it in my head. William H. Macy. Yeah, yeah, I... <laughs> I remember seeing him in Mystery Men when I was a kid, and it's like the first film I saw him in. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, uh, I really like that scene because I think uh, I think one thing that I really love about PTA is his ability to uh, um, evolve a shot, right? Where like instead of cutting or instead of doing something like um, like a movement, what he'll do is he'll maintain the frame of the shot and then he'll have a different subject come into view and the shot changes yeah right um and that's actually exactly what happens here in that moment where like uh it's like you have this moment where um in in burt reynolds um life he sees this kid and he's like oh damn like that's gonna be my next star right and the kid walks away and then his producer just like comes into view. I don't know if it, I don't actually know what his role was. Maybe like AD. He's, a, he's an AD. Yeah. yeah he's very right. much an AD. He's yeah. a character, a character of an AD. Right. Um, um but yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. No. yeah. Um, that one or, and it's the fact that he did it so many times. Uh, and that's another thing. <laughs> yeah. It's just the setting up the environment is crazy. The fact that you sort of have a complete, understanding of the layout of the club and that there's different elements to everything going on. And it's the same thing at Burnt Metal's house, you know, the house where it all happens is you get to be in every little room. You get to see every little spot and like this location that, you know, there's like real life breathed into it. Yeah. It's living life because literally what's happening and you imagine this while directing it is like, you're over here now and you're on Mark Wahlberg on this side of the pool. Right. But then he gets called over to talk over with the financer and Burt Reynolds. And then we go with him, you know, with next to no cuts or maybe a little cuts. And then we move over here and there's these people speaking at this table. And then we go over there into this room and then we come back at here. And then that person that was just speaking at that table is now speaking to this person, you know? And yeah, it's a very, uh, like human way to, um, 
set up an uh, set up an area or like you know like a new scene. Yeah, it feels so um, real. It feels yeah, so real. Like how I see it is, it's the replacement for the uh, for like the wide shot right at the beginning of your scene. Where yeah, you it's establish. It's the antithesis of coverage, essentially. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but instead of establishing your scene with a wide shot, you're establishing it in a human way, being like, we're not like it's not the place that we're worried about. Right. I don't. I don't care if you know what it looks like. Like I want. I want you to know the people and things going on. Yeah. Right. Um, I like that a lot. Um, but he's also got a great way, you know, all these characters were individually introduced at some point, even if, uh, they were all there in the very beginning shot, you know, we each get a, you know, of course we stay with Mark Wahlberg longer because he's the main character, but we get the roller girl, you know, we get her little introduction in school and we get, uh, our, um, black cowboy, you know, and his whole experience with working with stereos. And, uh, we get these little, he's able to give you almost these just little quintessential moments, you know, those scenes by themselves would be better than most short films made in, you know, film school. And that's sort of like, you know, as a side note, that's sort of what I argue for is like, what if we just, you know, what if (laughs) film school students just sort of made a scene out of a film, even if it didn't have an arc or anything like that, you know, because those scenes, they give you immediate character impressions that are so powerful and they stick with you the entire film. They do exactly what they're supposed to do. Right. And just by the way, for the audience, both of us are very critical of film school. I don't think you graduated, right? No, I didn't. Yeah, I, I didn't could either. have, but, <laughs> but there's really no point at a certain point, you know, like, yeah, you're never yeah. going to get a job from, and we should do an entire episode on film school, but there's, you're never going to get a job for your film degree unless you want to work on a crew and I don't want right. to work on a crew. So what's um, the point? Right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, anyways, um, yeah, no, you're right. Where like if you just kind of made these little scenes from films instead of uh, trying to actually make shorts, because shorts are difficult. And I think if you don't know how to make a feature, um, it's difficult to make a good short um, because you're essentially trying to condense everything, right? Um, so it might even be better to make these kind of single scenes that should be in a larger thing. Yeah. Um, but anyways, uh, about about boogie nights uh i so i i talk about this thing a lot where um i refer to the um how should i put this the perspective anchor of the camera right a lot in terms of uh how books generally write so like first uh close third far third okay right um i guess there's second two if you want to um do a a whole first person movie like hardcore henry even okay. though a lot of people would consider that first person perspective, but like I, I see that as like making the audience, the character. Yeah. Right. Um, but I don't exactly know what I would say first person is in film. I think maybe that's that, probably that like a heavy it, narration but... movie, you know, I think that's sure. Sure. Like where you're would... very much in their head. Um, yeah. But yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, that would make sense. So, like, heavy narration would be first, like, just kind of through the eyes. So it's making the screen, you know, the audience's eyes, the character. That's second. Um, then like third the way that I see third the is vast like, majority movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where where like there's no narration, but you're following one character, and this is what I would consider far third is Boogie Nights, right? Where you have this um, kind of ability to jump perspectives, um, mm-hmm. and even in even in 
in scenes that have the main character in it, uh, sometimes we're not following his perspective with the camera. Yeah. Um, particularly like if you look at the first scene, um, you know, we kind of are following the club proprietor and then we switch to Burt Reynolds. And mm -hmm. then, um, even when we we're introduced to the main character, we're still on Burt Reynolds. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, and I think a very good indicator, uh, for like how you can figure out whose perspective we're, um, kind of viewing the scene through and like what the camera language is trying to convey. Um, you can, when there's any sort of like POV shot, right. Where they show like a character looking at something and then you see what they're looking at. The, the character, the, the character that's looking is usually the one that's, uh, whose perspective we're at, we're in. Right. Yeah. Um, but then, uh, later in the diner scene, uh, we're in, uh, is it Julianne Moore? Is that her name? Yeah. Julianne yeah. Moore. Um, we're in Julianne Moore's perspective in the diner scene, right? And there's that one move that I love where you kind of have it mirrored on both sides of the table where uh, you get Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds is like in the middle of talking, right? And usually a director would have just like, you know, OTS, OTS, close-up, close-up of that conversation, mm -hmm. right? Um, instead of doing that, PTA decided, hey, let's actually go with uh, Julianne Moore's perspective on this instead of Burt Reynolds and whoever he's talking to. Right. Yeah. So you have this like um, moment where the conversation almost doesn't matter, you know, and we're mm -hmm. we're phasing away from it. And he shows that with a uh, with a, um, you know, what is it called? Fuck, I can't remember. I think I know what you're talking about. It's a specific shot where there's like a pan over, you know? Yeah, but it's not a pan. Where someone right? leaves the frame. That's uh, like the whole camera shifts. So it's, I want to yeah. say Dolly, like but I feel like Dolly almost. can only be forward and back. It's like a swivel on the, on like, it's like if the camera's stationary and just moving over. Yeah, it could have been. I, see, I feel like the camera was uh, actually on a track though and moving left to right. Okay. I forget what that's called though. Well, it's a track shot. I don't think it matters it as long as you shot? describe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. So basically, you know, like the whole frame just shifts and puts uh, puts Julianne Moore on the, I believe it was like the left side of the screen. And then um, there's a bunch of empty space on the right side. Right. Yeah. And it's funny because like I, I saw like a little video where the guy was trying to compare or trying to analyze that shot and um, was just talking about the empty space. And I'm like, no, it's the it's the move that's important. Right. It's the it's this uh, establishing shift away from the conversation at hand. Yeah. Right. Um, and then and then what you're essentially seeing from that point forward, like you're saying, is you're seeing everything through her eyes. Right. Yeah. And you have her looking at uh, Mark Wahlberg's character, and then you have this exact same move happen on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. And it's suddenly like her and Mark Wahlberg are sitting at the table alone. Yeah, because it right? removes, uh, you know, initially it's a shot of both Mark Wahlberg and Roller Girl, and then it's just a shot of Mark Wahlberg with the same move. Right, right. Um, and I think that's the that's the point um, that they were trying to make not the whole like empty space. Right. But no, the absolutely. idea that they were trying to make it look like they were sitting at this table by themselves. Right. And that's kind of where Julianne Moore's head was at because she was here, like falling in love with this boy. Yeah. You, you know, know, she had found her new son. Essentially. Right. 
um which is so interesting to think about like this whole dynamic um, yeah it's pretty fucked up frankly <laughs> well i mean, I mean like, there's one reading of this movie where it's like this movie's so fucked but it ends on this sort of almost unbelievably positive note which i like i like it but see like i don't i don't know i i think i think what it was trying to show is the humanity behind people that are in this like situation oh yeah it was definitely trying to humanize them and yeah uh, you know i think a big part of it was you know outcasts and people who didn't have families necessarily coming together and creating their own family but, yeah, uh, do you know what this movie actually thematically reminds me of? Is have you seen um the Japanese film Departures? No, I don't think so. I've okay. heard of it though. Um so it's it's kind of like a similar theme because it's about this uh to to understand the movie you have to understand that like in in Japan people that work at the dead are considered outcasts similar to how porn stars are considered outcasts in oh, like weird. 70s America. Yeah. Um, so people think they're strange that there's something wrong with them, that kind of thing, right? Um, and uh, musicians in Japan are considered of the highest class, right? Okay. Um, so this guy's like a concert uh, cellist, right, in this film. And he, his uh, orchestra, I think it, it goes out of business and he basically is out of work, right? So they mm. moved to the countryside and he's trying to find a job. And the only job he can find is as a. Uh, um, yeah, Running a morgue. Yeah, basically. Right. Well, yeah. and it's like it's like this. I don't know how to describe it in English, but it's this uh, job where you have to prepare the dead um, for like these ceremony. I, actually, yeah, it would, it would be a lot like it. Uh, yeah, more, like being yeah. a corner, but just with yeah, yeah. Japanese culture. Right. Um, but there's this like grand old ceremony that goes along with uh like letting the dead pass on mm. you know and it's not exactly like a funeral right um but yeah this his job is to like prepare these bodies for these families ceremonies right um and yeah like i won't give away too much of the movie but uh you know it it, it has a very similar uh track in terms of theme in uh that boogie nights does yeah being about these outcast outcasts finding like like almost returning back to what they didn't have and what they wanted yeah right um because if you do look at mark Wahlberg's family life you know his mom's like this i don't know if she was like a drug addict or an alcoholic but um you know the father was this week yeah the mom was an um, alcoholic for sure yeah with mark Wahlberg, she she spotted with the when he comes in and they have their whole fight she has like a glass of alcohol and a oh yeah, of alcohol yeah. Drunk. yeah. Um, so yeah she's yeah. she's she's domineering and abusive and right, the right. just completely uh uh abdicated his position in the family. right and and like I think it's interesting because usually like the whole cautionary uh, tale behind porn is that like um, these people that are in these bad situations end up gravitating towards that, you know, and like, I would say that this movie isn't without its like caution uh, because like you see a lot of side characters and stuff. um, Oh yeah. There's a very uh, seedy uh, uh, world admitted to in this film. uh, Right. In the world of pornography. I mean, the financier who, by the way, is played by uh, Robert Downey senior. That's uh, okay. The yeah. the colonel he that's Robert Downey oh, yeah, his yeah. father, 
Yeah. And uh, but he gets caught with child porn in this great scene. You know? Oh, yeah. Oh, that was and such a good scene. Oh, and there's also, also uh, moments where, you know, women just uh, these young OD, women yeah. OD on coke very violently. And then just like dump them, you know, like, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. but there's also, you know, one thing I want to bring up is in this movie, there's a moment about about the 50 50 mark, about when you're halfway done, where the 70s are ending. And we just did our best of 2019, you know. Yeah. And we talked about a lot about um, what is it? Uh, what is it called? Tarantino's last film uh once upon a time in hollywood oh yeah yeah and there's a very interesting uh sort of connection between the two where once upon a time in hollywood there's about it's about this idea of what if the 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 tough guys from the 50s and 60s could have saved the good times of the 70s ending and he's sort of pinpointing the, the 70s ending uh where they became nasty and not good uh, as the Manson murders. Well, similarly, there's sort of a thought in this film where uh, it's sort of mourning the loss of the 70s. And then the, when the 80s come around at that New Year's party, this is when everything begins to turn sour. And once again, they have another right. great party scene at the house and illustrate this. And right. William H. Macy's characters, the, the arc of his character, which comes to the conclusion here, is the one that sort yeah. of really sets off that feeling even though you get uh you get it in other conversations for example you know uh burnt reynolds character you know sort of getting told by his financer the colonel and this other guy uh played by phil baker hall that yeah. he's got to start shooting on video and that he can't be an actual filmmaker shooting on film now and the industry's <laughs> changing and he doesn't right. want to hear that and then william h macy you know it's established of this movie he's got a wife that just ruthless ruthlessly cheats on him and very publicly yeah. about it. And uh, he has enough. And he, at this New Year's party, it happens again. And he gets his gun and he shoots her in the lever. And then he goes out in front of the crowd and shoots himself in the head. And that sort of With changes the tone. <laughs> yeah, that changes yeah. the tone. And everything becomes like, okay, the good times were over again. That's right. a comment about the good times of the 70s are over and this bad time starts and you even get that with uh you know and and burt reynolds you know mark Wahlberg and burt reynolds have a fight they fall out and burt reynolds yeah. has to try you to know, figure out what else he's doing and they have that great moment as well where they're no longer these stars you know they're not, no longer going to these award shows what they're doing is they're picking up random people on the street with vhs tape yeah and uh sort of uh, you know getting semi-raped and then having to beat the shit out of this person and they just have no respect for themselves or from anyone else anymore there's no glamour to what they're doing anymore and there's these you know it's very seedy it shows very a dark aspect to this all and uh you know right. it, it all sums it up by saying at the very end at least they have each other or at least they found each other you know at least uh, the family's <laughs> back together again well but, uh um, the show the, the one thing that i really like about the little bill storyline yeah. is that like that issue was actually going on throughout the uh throughout the like fun 70s right like he was when you look at him he's obviously becoming more and more unstable oh william um, h macy yeah yeah his character yeah um is that his name is it little bill that's what everyone called i don't him, know right? I don't um know. i'm just gonna say that because um, <laughs> it's important to what i'm trying to say but uh they call him little something right um yeah but r the reason that's important is because he's kind of this character in their um in their life right they yeah. all call him little bill they they know that his wife cheats on him like publicly right yeah and, and humiliates uh, him more than anything because they even established with burt reynolds that he doesn't really care that his wife 
sleeps around he he sort of right. directs her to do it but right you know there's this different flavor to the whole situation with uh william h macy right right and you see even when the uh cinema, cinematographer comes to talk to him um yeah. and you know there's that, that great whole shot scene, yeah where you, where you like his wife's getting uh fucked in the background right yeah and yeah, yeah. um and like the cinematographer doesn't even think twice about it right he doesn't even like like everyone just calls him little bill right Mm-hmm. And uh, he's he's this character in their life, right? And he's he's just a flavor to these uh, the fun times in the seventies, right? Yeah. And I, I think the thing that the thing that the film shows is that they don't they don't um, they don't really see him as a human, right? No. Um, and it, it's it's kind of the common thing with everyone in this era and I, I think the film does a good job at showing how like the 80s were a product of how we were in the 70s right sure like yeah, it's not it's not necessarily out. that um like something happened and you know ruined yeah i mean everything. he's also foreshadowing i think he's sort of right, right. from the very beginning to say that this isn't all good you know and then right, right. when he finally has enough you know that's when he, he's right. the thing that brings the big tonal shift even though there's other moments um, right, right. Well, you anyway, know, Julianne Moore, you know, I'd watch yeah. go ahead. I'll, I'll talk about this later. You go ahead. Um, yeah. So like, I kind of like this idea that like, uh, that all of this was almost inevitable, right? Where, oh, yeah. um, you know, you, you have this shift that happens, but the shift happens because of things that were happening in the seventies. And it's not something that like just occurred or could have been stopped like Tarantino. Yeah. I mean, that even relates to the character arc of Mark Wahlberg, where you see him, you know, because of the intoxication of his success in the seventies. Right. And yeah, exactly. You know, leads to his downfall in the eighties where he gets a huge ego where he doesn't really understand reality. He's horribly addicted to drugs. Well, Um, and you even see, you even see that between his first speech and the second speech that they show yeah. with the awards right whereas the first speech is actually like it's it's a little naive but it's also um like very endearing yeah right um and it's very honest too right and then the second one he's just up there he's all like more dressed up right and his mm-hmm. whole speech is just thank you yeah you know thanks. and he lifts up the trophy <laughs> and leaves right and it's like you can see this evolution happening yeah. um and uh yeah no like i think i think pta does a good job at showing what was what was wrong with what was happening during the 70s and why that created the situation in the 80s yeah i completely agree but there is that shift where the audience is having fun watching the 70s right and then when the 80s come around it's a it's a different story right right um it's it's where the reality just you know the reality of the situation came to the forefront Oh yeah, um, and uh, I, you know, to talk about that even more, I want to talk about Julianne Moore's character. Oh yeah, you know, it's established early on that she mm-hmm. has this son that she's estranged from, and who she, you know, barely sees or speaks to, partially due to her own lifestyle and partially due to um, her ex-husband not really wanting her to have anything to do with her son. Yeah, and at this time, at this switch to the '80s, we get this amazing character scene um, of Julianne Moore. Uh, having to go into court into a sort of divorce court and fight for uh, it's sort of like more arbitration though it's with the judge behind the scenes it's not like in a courtroom right but about uh, her rights uh, her visitation rights 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, she gets her child ripped away from her, essentially. And that scene, I just, that scene's so powerful. And that, um, it's just another one of these great character scenes that right. are littered throughout all of PTA's movies, but especially in this one with the wide, you know, the very big cast, the ensemble cast. Right. And so, so you get the taste in, even in her life, you know, and then you, you have it with, uh, and I just want to say Don Cheadle as well. Oh, yeah. Don Cheadle's like this great side character in the entire story. And, uh, He's searching for, you know, I think he, he's got something even more than just searching for a family. He's definitely searching for an identity, frankly. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and this is illustrated with all his different uh, fashions, you know? Right. And there's this girl that has, uh, you know, a crush on Mark Wahlberg, and she sort of transfers over her feelings into Don Cheadle when it's not uh, reciprocated. And right. uh, they establish, a, they have a family. She gets pregnant, and he's trying to get a loan to get out of the porn industry and uh start a stereo shop but he's rebuffed you know the no one's giving him a loan whatsoever Uh, right and that's the great thing is like that's sort of the end of the two arcs in a sense i sort of characterize this as like two two uh or acts i should say like there's three story acts there's one there's the setting it all up in the good times the 70s but also you know like you said uh putting the work in to foreshadow the eighties. And then there's the bad times in the eighties. And then there's this final act where it's sort of like everyone has these crazy scenes where they either luck out, you know, they luck out in some way or, you know, uh, they get redemption. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, Don Cheadle's is the fact that, you know, he's got no money. He still wants to open the record. Uh, the that stereo scene shop is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the robber comes in when he's buying some donuts at a donut shop and, uh, Three people end up dying. Not Don Cheeto though, and it's one of those great, like it is Tarantino esque almost that shootout. Yeah, where it's just like within one second, all three people are dead, other than Don Cheeto, and he's just covered in blood. Right, and he grabs the money and he goes. That that, that was going to be stolen, you know. And right, there, right. There he goes. He can make his. He can get his stereo shop. So right. That that scene was uh, like that one confused me as to. I mean, if you've ever seen Magnolia, he does I that. I okay. love that. You know. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is almost a god in his films that comes in out of nowhere and creates, you know, these situations where his characters will actually luck out for <laughs> once and he saves them, yeah. you know? You know, uh, I actually crazy. I actually do like that, though, because whenever, um, like, I feel like luck in film and in storytelling in general is, gen- like, people either avoid it or overuse it. Sure. You know, and the problem with overusing luck is it becomes... Uh, you know, uh, it becomes unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but I definitely have an issue where I never let my characters be lucky. Right. Um, which maybe I should rethink because, you know, luck definitely exists and happens. Right. Um, and yeah. I feel like it is like that situation with Don Cheadle where, you know, that's, that's exactly what it feels like where, you know, he basically just stumbled onto a pot of gold but in this like in the most horrific way possible <laughs> yeah you know um but uh no yeah no that's interesting um i have to think about that one more but um the uh actually kind of looping back to what i was talking about before where uh this film i believe is about like these people from broken broken families right mm-hmm. um essentially find what they need in the porn industry right um 
because that's what is at the core of it all is that they found a family and all these bad things sort of happen um, yeah externally and they're sort of incidental almost but well the reason why it all comes back together at the end is they had that they had their family and they that's what they crave right you know well, and, and I, look I, at this, the scene with i'm sorry to interrupt but look at the scene yeah, with yeah. julian moore and roller girl you know where they're doing shit tons of coke on julian moore's bed and she's yes, like exactly will you be my mother and she's like, <laughs> yes i'll be your mother and then they're just sort of like freaking right, out right. on coke so happy because yeah you know they've formalized what they've already felt which is right you know, we're a family. Well, and, and i think that uh this this uh lines up with a uh belief that i have in my head which is that like sexual perversion actually comes from us trying to fuck what's wrong with us. Right. Interesting. Um, <laughs> um, and it creates this, uh, and, and I think this movie is a good example of that where, um, you know, you have these people being pushed into the porn in- industry by their own. Um... Honestly, it feels, it feels like a, uh, it feels like they're being pushed into it, but by themselves. Right. And like, but you have these, like you have roller girl having her experience that pushes her into it. You have, um, uh, Dirk, right. Eddie, um, he, he, sorry, Mark Wahlberg, but, uh, he's having, he has his experience that pushes him into it at the beginning. Right. Yeah. And, like he's talking about like making something for himself, but it's really the reason that we're there is because it's because of the family dynamic, right? Yeah, and to go what you're saying with the sexual perversion, you know, trying to fuck what's wrong with you. I mean, he's literally fucking his mother in a sense. Right, right, know? exactly. <laughs> um, so like there's this whole uh you know, there's almost like a tenderness to it too that like he didn't experience from his real mother. Yeah. Right. He never experienced like love or belief or like you know uh compassion from his real mom right so he ends up finding it in this porn industry and i i think what what i would say the insight kind of boils down to is that um like the major the major arc that i see here in terms of all the characters is that they have they have their problem right they have the thing that they're looking for that they don't have in their real life right and then they enter the porn industry and they find this thing right it's almost universally family too right right well and yeah and then you have this uh this kind of rude awakening because they all realize that it's a fantasy right Mm -hmm. and they all enter the world of reality right where they're all like uh shunned and pushed away and pushed down and and addicted and addicted and they have all these like they're letting their uh and the glory of it all fades as well right you know, well, like, and, on film you're on video you're producing they're letting everything pedophile. that was wrong with them essentially rule them now yeah right? and i think at the end of the film you you have this you almost have this realization from all of the characters that like it didn't have to be a fantasy, right? Yeah, they sort of mature, but that's yeah. sort of weird. And that's what I, what I said earlier, where it's like, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson sort of confirms the fantasies. Like, you know, I want them to have a happy ending. And so well, they'll but that's, have... That's the thing is, I think that, like, they've decided that, like, the fact that it, there's sur- surrogate in front of family doesn't mean that it's any less real. That's true. Right? And I'm glad for them. And I don't think it's yeah. bad. I'm just saying it is... 
I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a hilarious ending almost, you know, because, you know, they even have the moment where Burt Reynolds says the sort of, you know, loving father is telling roller girl to clean up her room, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's sort of, yeah. It's yeah. Sort of, it's um, sort of funny. You're just smiling and you're just like, wow, I can't believe, you know, you know, less than like 10 minutes ago, I just watched Mark Wahlberg get beat up in it when he's prostituting himself. And, you yeah. know, so. <laughs> and you saw a roller girl kick the shit out of like some guy's head onto cement. Yeah. And, yeah. Almost murder someone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, like the thing, the reason that I think this is so heartwarming is because it, it strikes something true. And I think that that's the insight. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's that like, um, it's essentially saying that like just because just because they're your surrogate family doesn't mean that they're not your family interesting um and that's that was kind of my takeaway from it right and i think that's why the ending is so heartwarming is because he he essentially let them let them go down the rabbit hole of reality right yeah um for a long time in this film you know for the whole like beginning of the 80s right yeah i mean mark Wahlberg. you know we haven't really even talked about his arc so much but you know he has you know obviously the entire film sort of centered around him and he has the sort of the seediest journey yeah and uh you know he goes down the rabbit hole of thinking like he can just become uh you know a star uh, right. and he starts recording music and he's absolutely horrible he has tone deaf but there's yeah. you know and then once they run out of money you know uh he, did, he no longer has his porn star money. They have to decide to do something rather seedy, rather evil. And they try to rob that one guy. You know, that's just yeah. a fantastic scene. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, at the end of it all, you know, people are dying. You know, he's getting beaten up for trying to prostitute himself. You know, he just wants mm-hmm. to, he goes home and he apologizes. You know, in many ways, it's, there's also, you know, the arc to Mark Wahlberg's character is more than just sort of, uh, a search for family like the rest of them yeah. there's also a maturity you know he also yeah matures. No, he's like a child and he becomes like, an adult i think plot wise the the closest thing that you could say that this is the coming of age story yeah. right like i think at the very beginning he's very childish and very naive and at the end he's he's like i, I love the speech at the end where he's kind of um he's talking to himself in the mirror right and he's yeah. talking about how like they've all made mistakes and they've all like done things that they wish they hadn't. It's a, yeah. I think it's a homage to raging bull too. Is it? Have you seen raging bull? I haven't. Well, there's a great scene in uh, raging bull where, you know, he's, he's doing his lines in the mirror. Okay. Um, but yeah. it's also, uh, you know, I, uh, which, which one's better is the fight club penis at the end better, or is it, uh, <laughs> You know, the penis here at, at the end of Boogie Nights, which one's better? I think I prefer the Fight Club one a little bit. Really? Better, but I, I, think, I, I think I dislike the joke because it comes out of nowhere. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I think the, the whole... And it was set up. The whole thing here is that, like, that was the real star. Right? Yeah. <laughs> In Boogie Nights. <laughs> like, <laughs> it wasn't the... You know, it wasn't like... <laughs> it, it wasn't him, right? Yeah. It was it was the penis. I'm and, sure there's some sort of story as well with the rating of this this film that uh, I wish I had looked up beforehand. Oh, uh, I don't understand between like showing that. I, yeah, it, it. I mean, it looks fake. I don't know if it is, but um, yeah, it might be a prosthetic. Yeah, I'm gonna look up uh, the rating 
see if there's a story because I can't see, you know, especially when this came out in the nineties at not getting an NC 17, especially when there's some (laughs) films like blue Valentine that I've seen that. Right. Right. NC 17 rating. It's crazy. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much politics behind ratings though, that, you know, you never really, yeah, it's not done in like an open way either. It's like, it's a weird, not even a, it's like a non-governmental organization as well, from what I understand. Right. Right. I don't, I I don't know actually. Because uh, you don't normally see a, a penis in a movie, <laughs> right? Right. Um, I actually think that full frontal usually kind of like distracts from the story. Um, I think in this instance it worked though because one, it was the end, and um, two, it just made sense as to why that would be the final shot, right? Um. Well, according to the Wikipedia article here, mm-hmm. it says, I'll, I'll read it off. Yeah. After having a difficult time getting his previous film, Hard Eight, released, Anderson laid down a hard law when making Boogie Nights. He initially wanted the film to be over three long, three hours long mm-hmm. and be rated NC-17. Okay. The producers, particularly Michael DeLuca, said the film had to be either under three hours or rated R. Anderson fought with okay. them, saying the film would not have mainstream appeal no matter what. They did not change their minds, and Anderson chose the R rating as a challenge, despite okay. the film was 20 minutes shorter than promised. Okay. Um, so, like, he came in at two hours and 40 minutes anyways. So, huh, okay. <laughs> so it looks like they got away with it. Uh, I mean, when you think of it, there's not, you know, he, the, 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 the sex scenes are not gratuitous. You know, they're very no. much in close-up. No, not at all. So, um, I'm, and if the final you know, penis was a prosthetic, then it also might have helped their writing. Mm. Um, I don't know. You know. But, I don't know, maybe Mark Wahlberg just has a really big dick. Who knows? <laughs> no, that's for, I think that's a prosthetic at the very yeah, end. Yeah, yeah. It looks um, discolored. Yeah, that would be funny if uh, that's that was part of the casting. It's like, yeah, <laughs> no, you have to have a giant oh, dick man. to be this character. <laughs> but um no anyways uh but anyway how how this movie like um how they kind of go on this journey right where mark has his coming of age story but um in entirety i do feel like this film was about like accepting the I don't want to say fantasy of a surrogate family, but like um, denying the fantasy of a surrogate family, but then expect accepting the realities of it as well. Right. And they were able to all these outcasts that did come from these broken um, families and um, what have you, they all were able to find their uh, family here, you know? And I Mm. think it's, interesting because we're watching a film about like the porn industry and all the pitfalls of it but also at the same time we end on this incredibly heartwarming note you know um i don't know it's it's just it like i think that's one of the main reasons why this movie has always stuck with me you know uh, because yeah, it's it's an insanely memorable movie too. You know, it's yeah. You know, there, there's a reason why I think Tarantino's brought up in conversation with PTA so much, and there are and the similar thing is like the scenes are memorable. You know, it goes sure. to scene to scene to scene, and 
every scene has something, whether it's like a grand character moment or a girl's ODing, you know, yeah. or someone's wife is being, you know, fucked in the background as he's talking with his cinematographer, <laughs> right. you know? Right. And uh, it's just crazy. You know, yeah. it's just, uh, it's just really great writing that he has all these things happening at the same time, well bouncing between characters, you know, right. in their dialogue. It's just fantastic writing. It's just a very engaging. It's a very entertaining movie. You know, like the master is like an amazing movie and I love that movie, mm -hmm. but um, there's something to be said about how entertaining this movie is compared to some of his other ones, you know, like even there will yeah. be blood. You yeah, know, if you really exactly. love movies, you can just watch that movie, but this one right. is just genuinely entertaining, especially that first half. that's really upbeat about sort of the positive good times in the seventies. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then you establish all these characters and you really have fleshed them out. And uh, you give them these grand arcs, you know. Yeah. Even like some, like even characters as small as you know, as we talked about Philip Seymour where his whole thing is he just sort of falls in love with Dirk Diggler, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. And he gets rejected, <laughs> and that's sort of the end of it. I mean, he's in the background a little bit from there on, like he's telling Mark Wahlberg, "Hey, how about don't go rip off this drug dealer? That might be right, a bad right. idea." But other than that, he sort of has this just conclusion of crying in his car, calling, "I'm an idiot," you know. <laughs> yeah. That and, scene uh, is, I think, maybe the best scene in the whole movie. Yeah, it's good. I mean, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman is just a fucking master, man. Oh, yeah. So good. Um, that that scene's also so hard to watch. Um, I'm looking at this as well, and it's saying that Burt Reynolds, yeah. and I actually have looked this up earlier, but it's saying Burt Reynolds and PTA did not get along at all. Really? In fact, like they almost, Burt Reynolds threw a couple of punches at PTA, a couple, uh, and... Uh, <laughs> Like they, he would argue with PTA in front of everyone about his direction, mm. and you know he did amazing this movie. You know, Brian oh, Reynolds yeah. comes off amazingly in this movie, so I don't get it. Uh, but uh, apparently, Paul Thomas Anderson didn't really hold it against him and wanted to cast him in his next movie, Magnolia. <laughs> so that's interesting, but it was turned down. You know, that's yeah, yeah. that's the sort of director I want to be. Where it's yeah, like, exactly. I don't, you know, it's like that Werner Herzog with I forget who is whose name is, but he cast that actor like three times and. They almost killed each other each time, you know, and, <laughs> but he just kept casting because he's right, amazing right. anyways, you know? Yeah. So I, I kind of see Paul Thomas Anderson as that kind of director too, where the film yeah. is the only thing that matters to him. Yeah. You know, he'll do whatever it takes. Right. Um, which I, I love that. And I, I don't really like that people compare um, Paul Thomas Anderson to Tarantino. Cause I feel like it's so uh, it's, it's a superficial comparison sure right where like they're really they're really only talking about the style right where like i when i when i watch pta he reminds me a lot more of robert altman i agree you know i think the reason the comparison there is that uh number one when they both they don't when violence is done they have a similar violence to them i sure. think especially for the 90s yeah. you know yeah yeah when you compare their violence compared to other 90s movies sure but uh I think it's also just the fact that they were two very young directors that came out guns blazing, sort of auteurs, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then nine. Yeah. I think that's really where it cuts down to. I mean, they're good friends apparently. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when, uh, let's see. Yeah. When PTA does a film and like, I think, you know, I've only seen three of them, mm -hmm. but, um, I've seen There Will Be Blood like four times, right? Yeah, um, so good. Yeah. And... I drink your milkshake. <laughs> um, I'm so glad that Daniel Day worked with him again. 
Oh yeah, um, Phantom Thread Man. Yeah, I think that's my personal favorite of his movies. Cool, cool. I'll I think There Will Be Blood. One. I think is sort of the undisputed great film that he made, the greatest of all of them. But I don't know. I think I might like Boogie Nights more now. Um, really? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's so close. He's just a master. What yeah. Do you say? You're just comparing <laughs> legendary pieces right, of right. filmmaking um, to each other. But yeah, no, it's uh. <sighs> I don't really know what more. Also, you know, about. PTA was the guy that that said Adam Sandler can act and put him in Punch Drunk Love, and it's now true. here we are, you know, and we just had uh, Uncut Gems. <laughs> yeah, Uncut Gems come out, and it's yeah. just like, you know, Adam Sandler wouldn't be getting any sort of serious roles. I don't see. Think, I actually for PTA. I actually always agreed with PTA on that. Where like even in Adam Sandler's bad movies, uh, yeah, I kind of saw him as a good actor still. Yeah, and he, you, know, you know he makes bad movies on purpose too. So yeah. like I have more respect for that than making them by accident or not meaning to. Like right. Like, um, but uh, yeah, he's great. I mean, like just watch Happy Gilmore. I mean, he's fucking great. Though. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, also, so, what was that other movie that I saw him in? Um, that like it was. It was about, I feel like it was like a rom com or something. I, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't Click, the one with the rom oh, yeah. control. Yeah, no, yeah. He, had a, he had a performance in that, and I was kind of, I like, I, I was. Barely, there was really, there like, was, I was a drama like, not, in that movie. Yeah, yeah, I was almost like not really paying attention until his performance there, and suddenly I was just like sucked in, and I was like, "Whoa, this guy can really, really act," <laughs> yeah. you know. And uh, no, that that, I think it was that movie that made me really realize that Adam Sandler might be an incredible actor. <laughs> yeah. You know, not I mean, just, first time not just good, it. not just able to do what he's told to do. <laughs> like, incredible should be winning Oscars, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he should have been up for, uh, he should have been competing against Joaquin Phoenix this last year. Yeah. He wasn't even nominated, I don't think. Well, and I think it's because so. of, like, uh, Hollywood's general perception of him, you know? Sure. Um, But... No, I'm excited to see like what he does. Oh, you know what other movie that I just saw? What was that? Uh, the Meyerowitz stories. He was great in that too. Um, have you seen that one? I have not seen that. No, I don't know what you're talking oh, about. It's it's on it's on Netflix, I think. Uh, it was really really good. Um, it's funny because it's about this like family that has um, serious anger issues, and one of the oh. things that I loved in it is uh, that's like, not his only anger issue movie then, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but like it was uh any time one of these characters was about to explode into like a fit of anger, um, they just cut it mid sentence and went to the aftermath. Right. Interesting. And it was it was really it was really fun. Um but I would definitely recommend watching that one. Um anyways, back cool. to uh PTA. back to PTA, yeah. Well, we do have uh his cinematographer is Robert Alswit. Have has and, he done uh, all his movies? Not all of them. Yet, Inherent Vice, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, and There Will Be Blood. Okay. Interestingly enough, Phantom Thread is actually DP'd by Paul Thomas Anderson, and it really? looks amazing. He just did it. Yeah, he had. He said, you know, he leaned a little bit more on his camera assistance, but yeah, he just did it on his own. And I think that I don't know what the reasoning behind that is, but see, I uh, what I'm gathering from because when you watch his other films, um, there's a massive unity between the cinematography and the writing right yeah and the actors right and i feel like you can't achieve that if you don't have the director heavily involved in the cinematography 
Yeah. Right. Um, and not to take away from, sorry, what was the cinematographer's name? Robert Alswit. Robert Alswit. Yeah. Okay. Not to take away from him at all. Right. Um, because he, you know, is obviously a master cinematographer. Like he has done some incredible movies. Has he done movies for other directors as well? Yeah, I mean he's uh he did uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and Ghost Protocol. Yeah, he, he did The Town, okay. you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Some other cool movies in here. Um, Michael Clayton, Eight Mill, uh, Good Night and Good Luck. Interesting. Uh, a Double O Seven movie, one of the Pierce Bronzman ones. He's been around for a while. Okay, um, that's interesting because that makes me think that uh, because like I can almost see the like frame by frame aesthetic in between uh, like Rogue Nation and. Uh, some of Paul Thomas PTA's other movies, you know, yeah. but it almost feels like PTA was heavily involved in the movement of the camera. Right. Oh yeah. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure. I mean, I don't know a great director that doesn't talk, you know, that isn't like a DP himself in a sense, like the DP has got to be your best friend on, on set. If you're a director, you know? yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't see it any other way. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, no, he, he seems to be heavily involved. I don't think it's that surprising, honestly. Seeing Interesting. I, well, I'm wondering why PTA is no longer working with, you know, uh, Robert Alswit. And uh, because he worked with a different cinematographer on The Master, and then he's shooting on his own now. You know, he's just doing it. You know, he's doing the whole Coen Brothers thing where they edit their own movies, but it's under a different name because sure. that's how guilds work and everything is dumb. Right, right. But uh, in, there's an IndieWire article from 2019. And it says, uh, Robert Alswit, who shot six of Anderson's films, claims their relationship was unpleasant. Interesting. So he won't be shooting any. They probably won't be working together again. I wonder I wonder if it's because uh, Alswit thought that uh, PTA was too involved. Maybe. Hmm. Like Trent was trampling on his artistic ability. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I shouldn't speculate, but... Like based on Elswit's other films and the difference between them and PTA's films, right? Like PTA's mm. films have always had a similar uh, feel to the cinematography, and I don't see that feel translating into Elswit's other films, right? So I almost yeah. want to, I, I, I almost want to attribute that to PTA, right? I mean, when you see something like Phantom Thread and. You, you know, and he's doing it all on his own, you know, well, at least he's taking that role of the, of the cinematographer. You, yeah. You know, does it still feel like a tribute? Yeah, it does. Okay. It's his language. And I mean, I think that's pretty universal, frankly. I mean, yeah. Nolan visual style didn't really stop being Nolan just because he changed DPs because his last one retired, you know, and tried yeah, to become yeah. a director. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Um, I, I think based on Elswith's, filmography i'm looking at it here um i feel like he's he's good um but it seems like he probably is in a lot of movies where he gets a lot of creative freedom you know um yeah i mean like some of these blockbusters you know he might just be because there are directors like that that are like you know you really just hands off yeah yeah yeah. Um, I don't understand how you call yourself a director then, but there are people. <laughs> well, I mean, because there's there's the whole like producer run, like, you know, that's true. machine made film, right? Directors is hired guns. Right, right. And they're like there as a um, upper AD, I would say. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I wonder if like there was a big difference between him working on those films where he was the department head and he had a lot of power and the director is kind of just like, you know, talk to him once in a while and kind of let him do his thing versus um, maybe when he worked with PTA, PTA was a lot more strict about um, what they could and couldn't do. I don't know. I could see someone calling that unpleasant. Well, it also just seems like that's a reoccurring thing with Anderson. You know, it seems like there, there's a reoccurring situation of people not liking having worked <laughs> with them, you know? Yeah, that's so. fair. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, he may just, you know, and at the end of the day, I understand it. You know, it's like, it's my movie, you know? If, you know, you you know, you get all this sort of talk of people saying, you know, it's a collaborative art form and, uh, you know, and you want to listen to people's ideas. And like, I totally understand that. I'll listen to anyone's ideas. Right, right. right. When I, ha- you know, when, this is what I want to do. And guess what? You know, we're done talking about it. Now do it. Right, right. <laughs> well, and, and I think a lot of people don't. And like, when people think collaborative art form and they think like, uh, you have to listen to everyone's ideas. A lot of people don't realize that like one of the most uncomfortable things to do after you've listened to someone's idea is tell them that it's wrong. Yeah. Um, and that's part of your job as the director, right? You have to go up to these people and you know, they've had this idea, they've been excited about it and they've been working towards it. And it is completely wrong in the direction of the overall film. You know, and like while their idea might not be bad or might not be, it's it's not that it's bad or not well done, right? It's that, um, like, it's not your vision. Well, there's there's no unity to it with the rest of the film, right? And that's your job as the director to make sure that um, the whole film has unity. So that's a really, and I've had to deal with that before, having to kind of like shut people down. Yeah, you know, and it's not pleasant for anyone. Right. And yeah. I mean, you know, for me, it's like also like I'm not on like a actual production with millions of dollars behind it. Right. So like if their idea is simple, I'll I'll do something where like because I almost don't even want to have that conversation. You know, sometimes it's best to avoid conflict, you know, uh, because you don't want your actor to freak out on you or something. <laughs> so it's just like, OK, let's get a take of that and we'll do mine as well. Right. And you get a take of theirs <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. you just do like five takes of yours. Right. You right. Know? You know, um, you just have to learn like when to pick your battles and when to. Sure. Uh, sure. But so. I think I think with uh, I, I understand. I'm sure there are people that have worked with me that would call me unpleasant as well, right? And sure, um, it's definitely like I've had many a conflict like that where, um, like, a lot of people think of listening to people's ideas as a something that a pleasant person does, but I think it's actually the mm. opposite. I think a pleasant person generally like doesn't let people. Like when when I've been on pleasant sets, it's bec- it's there's a very distinct hierarchy, you know. Like it's ordered. Yeah, yeah. Pe- yeah. People people aren't allowed to have ideas, right? They're like, this is how this is how we're doing it. This is how we decided to do it. Like we're not changing it now, right? So everyone just fall in line and do it, and it's very pleasant, right? Because there's no expectation that you have any sort of creative freedom, right? Yeah. But when you're working on a set where you know the director or producers say hey like we are we're open to ideas right um because i, I think that's a double-edged sword because generally like that that's going to make the film better right because 
you can tell that they don't really care about their own egos. Uh, they really only care about how good the film is going to be. Right. Yeah. And they don't care where, where the quality comes from. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And you have this, like you, you can have this dialogue with people, but then all of a sudden, if uh, as a director, you know, if you're open to someone's idea, you can't just be a pushover and like let bad things through. Right. Um, so that's what breeds conflict is that they have an idea and you don't, you know, you're looking at it and you say, wow, this is, this is just not right. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, sometimes it's just bad too. You know, some people have horrible ideas, but, um, yeah. And people get touchy. Like you were just saying about, uh, you know, certain DPs being, the head of their own department you know that was a huge film school thing and we should really yeah. do a film school episode but like for whatever reason and i love good dps i'll say this much one of mm -hmm. my closest friends is, is a dp but film school dps man they fucking suck as human beings <laughs> well they, they're the uh they're, they're so obsessed with their gear and they're so much like i'm in charge of this i'm gonna get the great shot well and they're the they're the i i think that in when you're in film school they're the like the director right um and it's almost projects that are directed by the dp which is why nothing really has like some of the films look good but i've seen very few films that have that are actually uh good yeah you know that mean anything uh um, yeah, it's very strange yeah the, the goal is always to look pretty um yeah and you know these you know a lot of these people have it in their head somehow that they, they don't have to listen to anyone else that they're on a level equal or even higher than the director. And I don't understand how that enters the DP's head. Yeah. Well, and, and like, so it's, it's, it's just vanity and ego. Right. Um, yeah. But it's funny cause, uh, uh, I have a little anecdote where, uh, I think I ended up shooting someone else's film and I got a lot of flack for it from the DPs cause I was, I wasn't a DP. Right. <laughs> um and then it ended up uh getting put up there with the rest of the really good looking films that year and i didn't even think yeah i never even really went for it like i wasn't trying to get it to look pretty right it was just yeah i was trying to tell the story you know yeah that's the thing you know um, like i can tell you know i could bring up several movies you know feature length films that you know, are not the most beautiful films to look at by any means whatsoever, but they're still amazing movies. Yeah. You know, but every year there there's Hollywood produced movies that look excellent technically, you know? Yeah. But they're not very good. You know what? So I, I forget, I forget what magazine did this, um, but it's one of my favorite interviews where uh, they went up and interviewed uh, Roger Deakins and their question was, uh, it was like, how do you make your shots so pretty? I think it was like a cinematographer's <laughs> magazine or something, right? Yeah. And he just kind of went off on them, saying that that's not what you should be doing. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, that you should be telling the story with your shot. Um, yeah. But I love him, man. I love Roger Deakins. Yeah. Um, but. So, yeah, another like weird antidote is like, for whatever reason, like a lot of like young people who want to be cinematographers uh, are like, sports people they're like skaters or like bikers or some sort of like mountaineer mm -hmm. and they got into cameras through like um using gopros and shit to record them like doing ollies on their skateboards right you know right and it, like that you know uh, you can come into film from whatever you want but 
the you you definitely see this mindset in them where it's about the cool looking shot and like because they didn't come into it through a love of story you know right right and some of them just never found it so yeah i think um but actually roger deakins is a good example um here right when we're talking about uh when we're talking about uh robert elswood yeah right where with roger deakins when you when you jump from film to film with him you see him right yeah um, and you see the director too you do see That's the an amazing too. thing but like but it's cool because like you can you can almost feel roger deakins in in the cinematography right um yeah but like with elswit like looking at some of these films that he's done right when you jump you don't from, really see elswit too <laughs> yeah like when you yeah. when you jump from skyscraper to um to uh boogie nights the town right to boogie nights yeah i'm like between skyscraper and boogie nights i don't really see anything yeah yeah i see pta and then i see ben affleck in the town you know right right yeah it's crazy well anyways we've talked a lot about dping what do you think about the score um there's a lot of uh you know uh popular music put in there optioned yeah whatever so but there's also Michael Penn is the name. Apparently, really, the only thing he's done that has any sort of uh, notoriety to it is Hard Eight and Boogie Nights. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, I would say I didn't really notice the score too much um, in this. Um, I definitely noticed when he used, uh, like, you know, external music. Um, yeah. And that it, it was, uh, you know, and once again, there's another, like, superficial comparison to Tarantino, right? Right. That's true. That is true. Um, Apparently, Michael Penn is a musician in his own right. Okay. So, interesting. Do you know what he does? Uh, not really. Okay. Um, I'm trying to... No. But anyways, yeah, but it's... I thought it was good. You know, the actual composed music, I thought I got the job done. Yeah. So, I didn't think it was anything to write home about. I thought he had an interesting use of popular music. I've never been a huge fan. I'm not you know, actually so sure many people if the composer are... uh, does that. Um... No, I know. Yeah. I'm just talking about the score in general. Yeah. But uh, I'm not a huge fan of, like, you know, everyone is a fan of, like, the older music, the hits of the 60s and 70s. And yeah. I've always found it so strange that we're continually obsessed with music that came out in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know? Right, right. Uh um, I get that it's good, but like, holy shit, like we've never moved on. It's crazy. <laughs> we're just going to be listening to the same music on the radio for forever. Right. It's going to be a century from now. We're still listening to the movie from uh, music from the 60s and 70s. Yeah. I think it's, it's uh, when you use. It's interesting when you use m- music like that, because it's. um, Instead of how like, you know, with scores, they're non-diegetic meaning like you know it's not within the story right it's not within the world of the film you know with when you bring in outside music you can kind of do either and uh, switch between them too where you can kind of start non-diegetic and you can pop in and it can be on a radio now right or you can do what um uh wait where 
I think at the ending they were like playing the song on the stereo and then it like became non-diegetic as they left that area right hmm. um but that i've always thought that was pretty interesting how you could kind of um w- when you do you kind of have this freedom when you bring in music that they would be listening to you know and even if it fits the like they can listen to it they can fit the scene you can like kind of have it pop in and out of the world it's a very like fluid um yeah it happens right because at yeah. the club and music's playing when they're trying to rip off that drug dealer he's got music playing right you know? right so he has it in the world it's right i guess it does build the atmosphere of the world you know right right um it's very accurate but yeah and then cool. of course he's trying to do these covers of popular songs you know yeah um but it's interesting because like especially in that scene at the can we actually talk about that scene really quick the when they're trying to rip off the drug dealer yeah, go for it. Um, I love that scene so much. Um, I love the Asian kid in the background just shooting off firecrackers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's such um, a good source of tension. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know. It, it's using music in that way. Um, my favorite part of that scene is when the uh, track flips, the cassette flips, and it has to play this uh, track backwards. Right, and... Hmm they're like the tensions kind of building and then uh you know the the cassette just all of a sudden stops and then we're left in silence for a couple seconds and then we just get the tape turning around you know and yeah i think why i like that scene so much as a um just as a film scene right is because like it's not just about building tension it's about relieving tension as well right and the fact that the tension keeps getting built and keeps getting released and keeps getting built and then keeps getting released again, right? Um, I think the firecrackers even do this to a small extent where every time he throws one, it's like, you you know, the tension spikes a little bit and then it, uh, you know, calms back down. But you're, because you know there's guns involved, right? It's almost giving you this, uh, I don't know, what's the word? Reason to be... Uh, like super anxious right yeah <laughs> um yeah absolutely but and then the cathartic moment of grand violence right you know, right releasing it all yeah yeah i love it man i think it's great and also like you know we, t- we just talked a lot about the cinematography but you know paired with any great cinematography is like fantastic editing and i really enjoyed the editing in this movie as well mm. i thought it was amazing apparently the editor's name is dylan to Jenner, uh, yeah, <laughs> people with their last names. Um, but uh, he's apparently done pr- uh, practically every PTA movie. Oh, from nice. What I can see. Uh, that's actually, uh, I, I think that that is one of the most important relationships that you can build is having a great editor. Yeah. Um, or apparently, it's only been Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Phantom Thread, and There Will Be Blood. So apparently, not a few, but but, but very good ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and also there's these guys, this guy's filmed like uh, Unbreakable, Zero Dark oh, Thirty, nice. Brokeback Mountain, uh, The Royal Tenenbaums, The Assassination of Jesse really? James by the coward Robert Ford, which is super underrated, and we should do. An Sorry, what's about. this guy's name? Um, Dylan uh, Tichenor. It's T I C H E N O R. So, what a filmography! Technor, yeah, and he's got the town, doubt, uh, lawless, triple nine. I actually enjoyed that. Um, 
So, yeah, crazy guy. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. So, and the editing's great. You know, it works. It works uh, in tandem with the cinematography. It's fantastic, and uh, especially you know the editing on a film with shots that are this long and this sort of artistic. You know, and yeah, this sort a of lot voyeuristic of decisions to be made. Um, yeah. This guy is. I want to meet this guy one day. I just want to pick his brain. <laughs> like just from the films that he's done, I feel like he has, I feel like as an editor, he has a very, um, a very good grasp of emotion and characters. Um, well, it looks like he's got some interviews, so we should definitely, I would watch love those watch at some, some point. Um, but yeah, anyways, what I was saying is I think, um, the role of the editor in film almost mirrors the role of the director. Um, and what I mean by that is their job is to almost, uh, is, is to like, be wary, be aware of the minutia, right. Yeah. Um, and how it fits everywhere. And like, it's really, it's really hard for a director to do that because you have to be so big picture oriented all the time, you know, um, that it's really like for me it's at least it's always been difficult to uh to sift through all of the minutia you have to as an editor right mm. and it, it takes a certain type of person i think to be <laughs> to be you know okay with that too yeah um and to, to not lose context you know yeah there has to there i feel like you almost have to have some sort of ocd or something right yeah. where um where you enjoy it's hard um if you're looking at the same footage for hours on end you know it's well, hard and you enjoy even... looking at like 37 takes of the same exact thing and deciding which yeah. one you like based on different like small yeah. tiny things right yeah it's um, insane yeah the fact that you can even discern any sort of quality if it's good or bad after watching the same footage right for like and it's 10 like hours is... it's like every, everyone <laughs> thinks about that and they're like oh i could do it but then you sit down in the editing room and you like are looking yeah. at 37 takes of the same shot and you know you're like okay i can do this and they all blend together (laughs) and then you go to the next one right you you see that you've gone i don't know like two seconds through the film and the next shot has 57 takes right yeah (laughs) and yeah it's if you don't it's one of those things where if you don't really love doing that it's it's uh it'll kill you (laughs) oh yeah big time you know um but no, I think I think the editor is maybe the most important relationship you can make as a director, and I th- it's it's still uh, so upsetting to me how um, how Hollywood just barely recognizes editors, right? When they're, in my opinion, the, Didn't, the beating heart. Weren't they going to get rid of their Oscar award? Were they this oh, last God. year? I think it was yeah, it was some sort of insane thing where they were going to get rid of like two like major categories, but then they were going to keep things like CG up there, you know. And it's like, <laughs> right? What the fuck? Well, and I, and I think it's because people like people when they watch movies, they don't care about the editor, right? Because like w- when you talk to people, they don't. A lot of people don't even realize that the film's edited, right? They they don't like when yeah. people sorry people that don't like follow film at all, right? Like the average viewer. Yeah. When you talk to them, they don't even consider editing. Like it's not it's not yeah. even an art form in their head. They just like they barely notice that there's cuts. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think if the, you know they had them, if they had you communicate to them, they'd honestly probably try to articulate uh, an idea around like, oh, well, they would move the camera over here, and then they'd shoot that, and then they'd move it over here, and then they'd shoot that, right? <laughs> and that's how they do it. And it's like, no, they shoot all these shots separately, and then they juxtapose them afterwards. Right, right. Well, and like, yeah. good editors do so much for a film, and like when. What what was that film? I think it was Annie Hall, right? It was like completely re-edited by a different editor. Maybe. There's been remember. some films like that, yeah. But yeah, no, like that happens all the time where like films, like you think films are dead and a new editor comes in and they save it. They like save yeah. it in the editing room and like they're fucking magicians, Quaid. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I agree. But it's probably the most important thing. uh a uh, young filmmaker could do. And frankly, uh, there's a lot of free good editing software out there. I think Avid has free editing software. From what I'm hearing, it's pretty good. Yeah. But and, honestly, uh, frankly, you know, if you were a young filmmaker, what I would do is just download some fucking movies, rip them off the Blu-rays or something and like edit them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably one of the, the best things you could do. Well, and then and you start to realize really fast how hard it is. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I like there's a lot of people like quote unquote editing these days making like small little uh like montages and things for TikTok and such like that but like yeah. it, it's the same thing as that, that's the exact same thing as a cinematographer you know using his GoPro to shoot ollies right yeah. it's like a a masterful editor is uh it, they're they're literal miracle workers and like yeah, they're they're grammarians of a different language of like right. a, of a, a visual language. You know, it, it's it's pretty intense, and they are they're the ones that you know you write the film and you have the vision for the film, and this is all relating to story. But at the end of the day, uh, it's the editing that is assembling a, a, an actual story. You know, like it's right. an old cliche quote, but the the movie's made in the edit. You know, you're actually the final draft for the script is in the edit. I mean, right. everything's about the edit, and frankly, in my opinion. It's always been the, the funnest part for me yeah. is to edit because it's finally all done. All the hard work, <laughs> not to say the editing isn't hard work, but all the work of getting all these people together and do all of this on those different days at these different locations, that's all over. And now it's just you and the editor and a computer and you're going to sit there and it might take forever, but you're going to assemble the thing. Oh yeah. And, and it will done. take forever. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, damn. We've been in the editing room for years now. All right. Well, Nick, I think that's about everything. We talked about Boogie Nights. We talked about editing and cinematography. So let's end it there. Yeah. Um, and if you guys haven't watched PTA, um, definitely go through his, his filmography. And I like, you know, I'm the one to talk because I haven't yet, but uh, <laughs> I know it's, right? it's worth it. Even the three that I've seen. Yeah, yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. You know, I you know, I, I haven't had like a favorite filmmaker for a while, but I think he's definitely in the running. So. Oh yeah, that is amazing. But yeah. anyways, uh cool. We'll we'll see you guys next week. All right. See ya. Hey, Quaid here. As I was editing this episode, I was listening to some Paul Thomas Anderson interviews, and there's some audio I'd like to give you guys a listen to. So please enjoy. When I was seventeen, I think I was interested as as A, like a horny young kid, and B just sort of like more in the camp value of porn, you know, and more in the sort of silly titles and bad acting and that kind of stuff, which is always 
just kind of a thrill to watch, you know. And then I think over like 10 years, you know, that I sort of started writing Boogie Nights, I could got older, maybe saw more of the sadness or got more bored with what was funny was not so funny anymore. A lot of it comes from sort of my, my personal experience, but also from the reality of the porn industry, which is that these surrogate families are created. Uh, I think they're created in that world because it's, it's a world that can be so demeaning and so sort of demoralizing so quickly that they really look around to who they can latch on to and who they can hold on to and kind of create these families. He's very sexless, yeah, he's really asexual, yeah. I, that's something that I saw a lot with a lot of the sort of directors and stuff is that the, their sort of role had become asexual. And, I'm, I, and I can't really answer exactly why. I think it's a mix of they're trying to justify being filmmakers, so they want to try and take an objective kind of viewpoint on things, or probably it has a lot to do with just being bored by sex after having seen so much of it. This movie in particular, there was nothing I could do to talk anybody into it. It was like they either read it and they dug it and they wanted to be in it, or they read it and they didn't get it, and they're like, I don't know what this is, I don't want to be in it. I could never talk anybody into being in it. I love them, you know, and I don't know, it's, it's really applying my own personal feelings about porno. That weird personal feeling that I have about it, which is, you know, the, like, is represented in the movie. The first half is the pleasure and excitement that I can get from watching porno. The second half is all the sort of guilt and, and crap that I feel about feeling bad about that. But then ultimately, at the end of the movie, there is a sort of happiness, or I tried to at least come up with the saddest, happiest ending I could come up with, you know? I think that comes from that you know the fate of these people. You know that five minutes after you walk out of the movie theater, that their lives are going to still go on and they're just going to be as tragic and sad as always, you know, so why not offer five minutes of hope?